Hello, I'm Rob Buckingham and welcome to the Digging Deeper podcast, episode 74. Each week we dig deep into topics and questions to discover what the Bible says. What was the purpose of Jesus asking John to baptize him? And what did Jesus mean by referencing the gates of hell in Matthew's gospel? More on that later. But first, what did the apostle Paul mean by us heaping burning coals on our enemy's head? Let's find out. Pastor Rob, I was reading Romans 12:20. The scriptures say, if your enemies are hungry, give them something to eat. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. This will be the same as piling burning coals on their heads. How is piling burning coals on someone's head the same as giving them something to eat or drink? Um, I've got to say, great question. And I used to be somewhat confused about this verse too, as it actually sounds very vindictive. And, and I thought, you know, I mean, I know Jesus teaches that love your enemies, do good to them, pray for them, etc. And Paul seems to be repeating that teaching here in Romans chapter 12. But we don't like our enemies, and our enemies invariably don't like us. By the way, that enemy there, the word doesn't mean, um, you know, like what we normally equate an enemy to be. It just means simply someone that you either don't like or has hurt you and you struggle with them or they don't like you. So there's this kind of a barrier between you and that person. And so, Because I don't really think I have any enemies, but there are certainly people who, who probably don't like me very much and people that I would struggle with, like any human interaction. So it's talking about those people. And, and so, you know, for people that don't like you very much or you don't like them, it, it appears in, in this teaching in Romans that Paul actually gives us a way of not being very nice to them because piling burning coals in some on someone's head sounds like something we might want to do to someone we don't like very much. Jesus said, pray for your enemies. But when he said that, he didn't mean, mean praying God kill them. It wasn't that kind of prayer that he was encouraging us to pray. So Paul's teaching here in Romans 12 is about showing kindness to those who don't like us or who we don't like or both. So what's the deal with this burning coals reference? Paul's actually quoting from the book of Proverbs here, chapter 25 and verses 21 and 22 of Proverbs 25. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will, will reward you. So is God going to go, good on you, Rob, for pouring burning coals on your enemy's head? Here, have a reward. That's not what he's talking about. And then Paul adds these words in Romans 12 and verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so that's what he's talking about here. We should understand what he's teaching in, in, in light of 
the context in which we find these verses. So as I've studied this, I have found that there are at least three interpretations to what Paul is referring to in Romans 20. And so I'll give you these three. The first of them is this, that in the ancient world, people would carry a tray of burning coals on their heads as a sign of repentance. And so there were certain signs in the ancient world. People would dress in sackcloth, for example, when they were repentant, uh, when they wanted to come home to God. And so they would show their penitence, their sorrow for what they'd done or what they should have done by dressing in sackcloth. So if you've ever touched an, an old sack, you'll know it's very rough, it's coarse. Can you imagine wearing that? It would be unpleasant. It would be scratchy and itchy and unpleasant against your skin. So to, as a sign of penitence in, in the ancient world, they would dress in sackcloth and then they would get ashes from a fire and tip them on their heads, um, but not normally burning coals. And so burning coals, maybe they were another such sign. Uh, so the thought here is that showing kindness to your enemy may open the door for them to repent, to change their way, the way that they're behaving towards you, and that can certainly happen. Um, I think of Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 1, for example, where it says, a gentle answer turns away wrath or anger, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It's a wonderful truth to live by. So if people, either in your family or your friends or just, you know, on the road, or, uh, or at work, wherever, if they're angry with you and, uh, and they're coming at you with anger, the best way to respond is in gentleness because what that does is it diffuses the anger. Sometimes it annoys the other person as well that you're not being angry back, but it will invariably bring things down a few notches. So you're literally ministering in the opposite spirit. Someone's coming at you angry you're gentle in return to them. And so there is that thought in this view that being kind to people may lead them to repentance. So that's the first interpretation. The second one is that the reference to the burning coals is figurative of a life of nonviolence and allowing God's judgment to suffice. Uh, that understanding is certainly supported by the context here, the previous verse for example, in Romans 12, verse 19, it says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And you remember about two, three weeks ago, we did a deep dive into what the wrath of God is all about. And so in this interpretation, the burning coals are a symbol of God's judgment. And then the third and final view, which is the one that I resonate with the most, and that is that Paul encourages people to act kindly to their enemies, that that is what he's teaching in these verses. And in this view, the burning coals are a sign of kindness and not of judgment. And to really understand this, you have to understand something of the ancient world, but something that we still see reflected in some parts of the world to this day. Uh, we've had the privilege over the years because of ministry in Africa to visit Africa on quite a few occasions. We have uh, a home over there for abandoned babies. Um, we have friends who have pioneered a university in Ndola, Zambia. 
And so they've got that uni called Northrise University. You can Google that if you like and check out the amazing ministry that that is. And we have a lot of friends over there in churches, and we actually have a couple of Bayside churches now as well. We have um, uh, we planted one in um, in uh, uh, Lusaka in Zambia, and they've just planted another Bayside church about uh, 20 kilometres away, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, and so we have visited Africa every two or three years for about two decades now. And there are certain parts, especially in rural Africa, where you will see particularly women carrying pots on their heads. And I mean, amazing strength physically, uh, their neck, their whole body, really, an incredible balance as well as they're balancing these pots, uh, often laden with uh, fruit or vegetables or whatever, uh, carrying them beautifully just down the road. And so I believe that what Paul is talking about here is, is that kind of thing. And so in the ancient world, they would keep a fire going in, in the house or in the hut all the time, not just for heat, but for cooking as well. And so it would always be a case that uh, inside the house or the hut, they would keep these hot coals going so that when it came to prepare the next meal, they would literally stoke the hot coals, add more fuel, get the fire happening again and cook the meal. But of course, what would happen from time to time in any household is that for one reason or another, the fire would go out. And at that point, you would go to your neighbor and you'd balance a, a clay pot on your head and you'd go back, go to your neighbor or a friend nearby, and you would ask them, if you could have some hot coals from their fire. And normally, of course, if they were being neighborly, they would say yes. But what if someone knocked on your door and they were your enemy? They'd hurt you in some way. You didn't like them. They didn't like you. But suddenly they knock on your door and they say, look, my fire has gone out and I need some hot coals. If you, if you were angry with them, you'd say, no, go somewhere else or go start your own fire. But what Paul is teaching here is even if your enemy knocks on your door, be kind to them. Because he said it's just like you're putting hot coals on their head, not literally on their head, of course, in the clay pot, which you'd put hot coals in, and then they'd put it on their head, and they would balance that as they were walking back to their home, and they would tip the hot coals into their fireplace and be able to start the fire again. And so that's what Paul is speaking about here. And, and Paul's actually speaking from experience because if you think before his conversion, Saul was a Christ hater. He was an authorized assassin sent to imprison and terminate Christians. But then he had a dramatic conversion. And so in Romans 12, Paul reiterates Jesus' teaching from his Sermon on the Mount. And, and he's talking to the church uh, here because he used to be a persecutor. And he's saying, bless those who persecute you now. Bless and do not curse. Uh, that's in, in verse 14. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I love that verse there because sometimes it's not possible to live at peace with somebody. And at that point, you just have to commit them to the Lord. If you've done everything you can do to live at peace with them, but they still won't come towards you, then you just have to commit them to Jesus and love them anyway. And then verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. 
And verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so, um, in other words, the Jesus way is never passive and idle. Jesus was an activist, not a pacifist, but the activism that he supported was showing practical kindness to others, even to our enemies. So we could summarize Paul's teachings here in Romans 12 by this statement, the best way to destroy an enemy is to turn them into a friend. And I believe that that is what Paul is teaching here in Romans chapter 12. Hi, Rob. I just read your blog about being born again. It reminded me of a question I have for you. John the Baptist baptized Jesus, but Jesus was already a Jew. He had already had his bar mitzvah. What was the purpose of Jesus asking John to baptize him? Uh, By the way, the blog that Kelly is referring to there is called Born Again. What's that about? So if you um, put Bayside Church blog and Born Again in your search engine, uh, it will come up with that blog and you can read the historical cultural understanding of what Jesus is teaching in John chapter 3 and what he meant by being born again and why Nicodemus didn't understand. Well, he did understand, but he was perplexed by Jesus telling him that he had to be born again because really he'd been born again several times already. So Go to that blog if you want to know more detail about that. So to be clear here, Jewish people did not get baptized. Baptism is definitely not a Hebrew thing. The closest thing that the Jews had to baptism or to New Testament baptism was a thing called a mikvah, M-I-K-V-A-H, and that's a Jewish ritual bath. The mikvah is usually the very first thing built within a Jewish community. It consists of a pool of water that must naturally flow in one end and out the other. Uh, When Jesus in the New Testament scriptures talk about living water, he's talking about a mikvah or something similar. It's where there's a flow through. So living water is literally just flowing water. And Jesus then uses that metaphorically to talk about the Holy Spirit who flows in and through someone who believes in God. So there are natural mikvah, rivers, for example, the sea, which has a flow in of multiple rivers and a flow out as well. Even lakes that have rivers flowing in and out. Mikvah are used as renewal transition conduits. Being a desert people, the Jews considered water to have sacred properties. Water can renew one's soul. It's used when they are approaching a festival or a Sabbath day or a simcha, which is uh, a joyous event such as a wedding to mark the transition. And that's what this is all about here. It's all about transitions from one stage to another. For a woman, it's also used to transition between the period of menstruating and fertility. For women during this time, it is, as you can imagine, a very private ritual, usually done after dark in order to protect the privacy of the woman. Jesus would have had his first personal experience of a mikvah 
at his bar mitzvah when he was 13. The ritual is done alone. All clothes and jewellery are removed. The person is as they came into the world, completely naked. One washes oneself in the mikvah and then says a barucha or a blessing, and then they submerge themselves three times. So it appears that John the Baptist adopted the mikvah as he called those who came to him to come back to God. And so there were people coming to him uh, out in the desert by the Jordan. They'd heard about him uh, calling people to repentance, come home to God, he was calling. And then he would put them in the Jordan River, which was a mikvah, a flowing stream, uh, as an act of cleansing, uh, transitioning an old life to a new life of following God and being with him through flowing or living water. Much of the New Testament, of course, was written to Gentiles. And so instead of using the Jewish concept of mikvah, the Greek word baptizo is employed. Now, baptizo was specifically used of ceremonial dipping, uh, and the word literally means to submerge. Uh, it was. It has many uses. It would be used of a ship that was sinking. The, the analogy I like the most, though, is um, that of dyeing cloth. So you can imagine you've got a piece of cloth. You want to dye it another color. And so you literally take that piece of cloth and you fully submerge it in the dye and you let the dye sink into the cloth and then you bring it out, let it hang up and dry and then the cloth is completely transformed. It's the same cloth, but it's completely different as well. And I think that's a wonderful picture of the mikvah uh, or the or baptism or baptizo because it transitions from one state to another. So back to Kelly's question for a moment here. What was the purpose of Jesus asking John to baptize him? And I believe that... Um, Jesus was baptized for at least three reasons. First of all, because God approves of it. Secondly, because it's the right thing to do. And then thirdly, because it sets an example for us to follow. If you think about Jesus' statement uh, and this whole scene in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. The word righteousness there refers to the approval of God, literally divine approval. But righteousness was also linked to justice and ethics. It was the right thing to do. <clears throat> and so by humbling himself in baptism, Jesus expressed his faithfulness to accomplish God's purposes and the assignment the Father had given to him. He was also baptized because he wanted to set an example for his followers. So uh, as a follower of Jesus, when I read about the baptism of Jesus and I heard about this as a brand new Christian, I, I found a desire within myself also to be baptized. And then I walked away from my faith for a good two years. And then when I came back, to my faith in Jesus as a 21-year-old, uh, I asked my pastor and I said, I really would like to be baptized uh, again because I'm really doing it from the heart now. And he was very happy 
to baptize me by full immersion. So that was because Jesus set an example uh, to me and I wanted to follow his example. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and finding help understanding the Bible and how it applies to life. Here at Digging Deeper, we'd appreciate your help letting others know about this podcast. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. And please like Rob Buckingham's public figure page on Facebook. You can interact with us there and ask questions you'd like Rob to answer in future episodes of Digging Deeper. Now back to Rob. Is it correct that the rock that Jesus built his church on in Caesarea Philippi was where a goat god was worshipped? Is it true that Jesus' comment is to affirm that his church will be built on the rock where the darkest of rituals took place? Great question, and, and the short answer to it is yes. The discussion detailed in Matthew chapter 16 between Jesus, Peter, and uh, the other disciples occurs in a place called Caesarea Philippi. It was near a mountainous region containing Mount Hermon, which was Israel's largest mountain. And uh, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, there's a, there's a couple of things probably happening here. One of them is that Jesus probably wanted to gauge what his disciples thought. He wanted to draw some truth out of his closest friends, his followers. But he also, I think, was intrigued to know what the local gossip was, if you like, about him. So like, what are people saying about me? And so the disciples reply. Uh, they, some of them say um, that you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Still others say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus zeroes in and he says to the disciples, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon people, Peter answered, because Simon Peter was always the first person to open his mouth. And on occasions, he actually engaged his brain first. And this is one of those occasions. He said, um, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you, this is verse 18. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Some translations call it the gates of hell, and that's not correct. It's the, the Greek word is Hades, and uh, Hades was the name that the Christians borrowed from the pagans, basically. Hades was the god of the underworld, and so the Christians borrowed that word, Hades, also for the underworld. And so the, the underworld will not overcome it, or the gates of the underworld. The gates, by the way, would have been the place of power. Uh, so the gates of the city in the ancient world was where the elders of the city would sit and have their discussions and make their decisions. It was the place of power. So the gates of hell. Interesting play on words that's happening here, though, because Jesus says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So the name Peter here, uh, earlier he calls him Simon, which was his first name. It was Simon Peter. Um, so Peter. And 
Peter is Petros, which means a stone or a boulder, or, although a boulder is probably too big. It literally means a rock that can be thrown. So it's small enough to be able to be thrown. So you are a little rock, he's saying to Peter, and on this rock, Petra, not Petros, Petra. So Petra was a large mass of rock rising up through the earth. It was a rock that couldn't be thrown. If you uh, type in the city of Petra into your search engine, it will bring up Petra in Jordan, which was, uh, well, I think it's still one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was an entire city that had been carved into rock, and it was a highly fortified place, uh, very difficult to attack. And so Petra was this large mass of rock that was rising out of the earth. And, um, and so that's what he's saying here. I tell you that you are little rock, and on this massive rock I will build my church, and the gates or the powers of the underworld will not overcome it. So the rock here is the revelation of who Jesus is, Peter's, Peter's rock that you that he uttered you're the messiah the son of the living god that is the immovable rock that the church is built on and and i gotta say if there's a church that is not built on jesus as the messiah then it's actually not a church it's got to be on the foundation of jesus or it or it isn't one of jesus's church churches. So what are these gates of Hades that will not overcome Jesus' church? As I mentioned before, Jesus was in a place called Caesarea Philippi, which is today called Pania or Bania. Uh, Pania means the city of Pan. At the uh, center of town was a temple to the goat god Pan in the ancient world. Pan received worship through intimate acts with goats. And you probably don't want to put this in your search engine, but I did <clears throat> today. And there are certain pictures that come up when you do that uh, of this really ugly looking half man, half goat, literally having intimate acts with goats. And so, but that's what they thought would happen back in, in the ancient world. In fact, the court in public view outside the temple was called the Court of Pan and the Nymphs. So you can just imagine. So nymphs, of course, are creatures of fantasy like elves or fairies. But we also get our English words nympho or nymphomaniac from this word, referring to a woman with uncontrollable or excessive sexual desire. A nympho is a person whose behavior deviates from what is acceptable, especially in sexual conduct. And so Pan's temple was set on the side of a gigantic rock face. Next to it was a giant cave where the Jordan River originates and flows all the way to the Dead Sea. They called it the Gates of Hades or the Gates of Hell. The priests of Pan would say that if you did not worship Pan to his satisfaction, that he would open the cave and swallow you into Hades, into the underworld. And so for the disciples, this was an evil, eerie place. This is where Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In other words, what Jesus is saying to the disciples is this. Think of the toughest and most unlikely place to establish a church 
And that is where my church will thrive. And I love that truth. I think we actually need to have a, a revival of that truth because I hear a narrative from so many Christians around me and, and particularly on social media all going off about what the world is like today. Like, you know, things are getting worse and worse and worse and look at this happening and that happening and isn't it awful and, you know, the church is being pushed out and bloody, bloody, blah. Jesus' message that he said to the disciples rings just as true today as it did 2,000 years ago. And let me tell you, some of the practices they had in the first century when Jesus established his church would make stuff that happens today look like child's play or kindergarten. What is happening in the world today is no worse. In fact, the world today is a whole lot better in many ways than it was uh, in the first century. So rather than getting angry with the world around us and saying how ungodly it is and and being angry with them and all of this kind of stuff, let's rest assured that if we're part of a church that is built upon the foundation that is Jesus Christ, the revelation that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God, you can pioneer a church anywhere you like. You can plant a church in the worst part of the world and you cannot kill that church. You know, they tried to, uh, or they have tried to, many times over the centuries in communist nations and other uh, regimes where they burned Bibles and, and killed pastors and imprisoned believers and shut the whole country down to the outside world. China is a classic example. And when China started to open up in the 70s and the 80s and Christians could go in once again, what they found was not the small, weak, fledgling church that existed at the communist takeover, what was there was a strong church of millions and millions of people following and loving the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't, you can't kill the church. <laughs> One church might shut down, but a dozen more will open up. And the church will go from strength to strength. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here, about the gates of hell or the gates of Hades, the powers of the underworld, the worst that Hades can throw at the church will never prevail against it. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. A new episode of Digging Deeper is out every Wednesday. If you like this podcast, please share it with others and rate and review us on iTunes. That goes a long way to help others find us. If you have a question or topic you'd like to address, please get in touch with us at Rob Buckingham's Public Figure Facebook page or email connect at baysidechurch.com.au. Next week, Pastor Rob will be joined by his Jewish friend Tal to gain a Hebrew perspective into the scriptures. All that and more on next week's episode of Digging Deeper.